We live in a corrupting age. One key corruption is how social media was constructed to feed controversy. No matter one's political views, or sports views, or fashion views, or any other kind of views, things are designed to bring us to hatred of what I call the other guy. Whatever feeds that anxiety, that sense of outrage, that sense of the other guy being wrong, is fed. And whatever does not, just does not gain traction. Whether you know it or not, you are being played, often by members of your own team, <laughs> in order to look at the world in such a way. You may remember if you were here last week that I shared the story of a little children's book that my mother read to me every night. And by the way, I took that book to my mom. I visit her on Sunday afternoons. I took that book and had her read it to me <laughs> last Sunday afternoon, and I videoed it. <laughs> so I'll have it with me. It'll be a cherished memory. But I got another children's book for you today. This is Dr. Seuss's book, The Butter Battle Book. Uh, it was written at the kind of the height of the Cold War, but I'll just read the first few lines of it for you. On the last day of summer, ten hours before fall, my grandfather took me out to the wall. For a while he stood silent, then finally he said with a very bad shake of his very old head, as you know, on this side of the wall we are yooks, and on the far other side of this wall live the zooks. Then my grandfather said, it's high time that you knew of the terribly horrible thing that zooks do. In every zook house and in every zook town, every zook eats his bread with the butter side down. But we yooks, as you know, when we breakfast or sup, spread our bread, Grandpa said, with the butter side up. That's the right, honest way. Grandpa gritted his teeth. So you can't trust a zook who spreads his bread underneath. Every zook must be watched. He has kinks in his soul. That's why as a youth I made watching my goal, watching zooks for the zook-watching border patrol. It's that kind of world that we enter as we come to Judges chapter 12. I invite you to open your Bibles there, Judges chapter 12, where people are killed in the end. They are killed because they cannot pronounce a word the quote-unquote right way. 42,000 people, in fact, are killed because they don't pronounce a word the right way. Here's the lesson that we're going to look at today. Watch out that you don't pay others back for the wrong that they do to you. Watch out that you don't pay others back for the wrong that they do to you. Judges chapter 12 this morning. We'll read the first seven verses of the chapter. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? 
Judges 12, the men of Ephraim were called to arms and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim, and the men of Gilead struck Ephraim, because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites, and when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, (coughs) you have to forgive my cough this morning, sorry. The men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Please have a seat. In the first three verses here, we see that success puts a target on your head. Uh, Have you ever heard of the term Monday morning quarterbacking? It comes because at one time, NFL games were all played on Sunday. And so then when you analyze the game from the day before on Monday, you would be able to say with perfect 100% wisdom what should have happened, what the coach should have done, what the quarterback should have done in certain critical situations. And so looking back on something that's happened and analyzed it and saying, well, this is what should have happened, that's called Monday morning quarterbacking. And it's always existed, hasn't it? You'll notice here in verse 1 that the Westsiders, the Westside Ephraimites, are questioning Jephthah and the Eastsiders. Why? Why did you cross over to fight the Ammonites and didn't call us to go with you? Notice the success isn't being challenged. It's rather the methodology that's being questioned. This quite often happens to leadership. If you're in any kind of position of leadership in any organization, you will discover that oftentimes you'll make the right move that leads to success and people will still say, you did it wrong. The outcome was fine, but the way that you did it was wrong. And that's what's going on here. These Westsiders are saying, Jephthah, you and your Eastsiders did it wrong. Why did you cross over and not call us to go with you? You know I have a map, don't you? So here's what's going on. Jephthah is fighting the Ammonites over here on the east side of the Jordan. These Ephraimites, fellow Ephraimites, they're from the same tribe. They just live on one side of the Jordan to the other, right? They're from the same tribe. Jephthah is an Ephraimite. And, and the Westsiders are saying, why didn't you call us to come help you in this battle? And Jephthah's answer is, um, hello, I did. I asked you to come and you didn't come and I took matters into my own hands. 
Notice the clear intention of these west side Ephraimites is very clear in the next line in verse 1. They ask the why question, and then they say, we will burn your house over you with fire. Their intensity of hatred is strong here. And Jephthah's success is the reason for the hatred. They actually feel more invested emotionally in their anger at Jephthah over his success than they ever were in their oppression by the Ammonites. If you go back to chapter 10, you see what the condition was before Jephthah took leadership. It says in verse 8 of chapter 10, they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel. And verse 9, they even went over on the west side of the Jordan to fight against Judah, against Benjamin, against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. So Jephthah has come and brought about a victory, but these west siders are so intensely hating how Jephthah did it that they're more emotionally invested in their anger at Jephthah than they ever were in the oppression that they suffered under the Ammonites. Jephthah in verses 2 and 3 tries to reason with the unreasonable. He says, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. I called you. You didn't come to help. So when I saw that you wouldn't help me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over to fight against the Ammonites. This isn't about me, he says in verse 1 or verse 2. I and my people. It's not about me. I called you. It wasn't an intentional act to leave you out. You didn't come when called upon, and when it became apparent that you were not coming to help, I did the only thing that I could, take matters into my own hands. With the Lord's working, we won. And then Jephthah has a chance to ask the why question in verse 3. Why, then, have you come up to me this day to fight against me? There's some applications that we can make from these first three verses. Uh, One is that, did you know that some people will hate you without a cause if you are successful? The very fact of your success is going to cause some people to hate you. Some folks will even see it as their responsibility to trouble you in order to keep you humble. (laughs) It's kind of a remarkable thought, isn't it? And yet it, it happens. In, in politics, and this is a political situation here in Judges 12, isn't it? In politics, did you know that there's no universally accepted success? Nobody ever gets 100% of the vote. Doesn't happen. If they do, then you know that the election is rigged, right? Oftentimes you read about some dictator somewhere that they've had an election and the dictator gets 100% of the vote. You know at that moment that it's not real, right? In politics, there's no universally accepted success. Some folks want the demise of their political opponent even if it means their own loss, Even if it means their own loss, they are willing to take that if it causes their political opponent to fail. Uh, It reminds me of the story of the Middle Eastern shopkeepers. Uh, They hated each other, and one day 
uh, a genie appeared to one shopkeeper. This is not a true story. Genie came to the shopkeeper and said, I'll give you one wish, but just know that whatever I give you, your adversary, the other shopkeeper whom you hate, will get double. The shopkeeper thought for a minute and said, then I want you to strike me blind in one eye. You see, some people want the demise of their opponent, even if it means their own loss. How does the believer in Jesus Christ uh, respond in such an environment? How do we respond? Well, let me share with you three, three ways we can respond. First, we need to know the gospel for ourselves. If we remember, if we just remember how much we've been forgiven, how much we've been set free, how our life is hid with Christ in God, we are not our own, nothing we have is ours, and we are on our way to heaven where there's going to be a kingdom that is going to be perfect that's not our own kingdom, it's Christ's kingdom, and it's His glory we live for. When we know the gospel for ourselves, we can respond both to seeing other people succeed and are being disturbed by it in the right light, and we can handle with grace those who may hate us for our own tiny successes. Secondly, we need to seek God's kingdom, not our own, right? We need to seek God's kingdom, not our own. If we're about the building of our own little petty kingdoms, then we are going to live by the details of what people do to us and what we do to them and how it'll, it will drive you crazy to live in that kind of environment. Seek God's kingdom, not your own, and then you'll have a joyous release, a joyous freedom from those kinds of plots. Thirdly, leave vengeance with God. Leave vengeance with God. You may have been horribly wronged, perhaps because of even your own success. Perhaps even your own family members despise you for some unknown reason that is based on something that seems to you to be completely irrational. How do you handle that? Leave vengeance to God. Think about Joseph imprisoned in Egypt because of the plottings of his brothers. How did he conclude it? Genesis 50 you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about the saving of many lives, trusting in God's sovereign plan. Or David, who, when he was being chased all over the Judean wilderness by Saul, when he had two occasions to kill his opponent who hated him without a cause, said, I won't harm the Lord's anointed. Or the Apostle Paul, who writes in Romans chapter 12, these words that 
understand that Romans is all about the first half. It's all about knowing the gospel, knowing it very clearly and understanding it. And the rest of the book is about how you apply the gospel. And when he gets to that application, here's what he says. Bless those who persecute you, Romans 12, 14. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own eyes. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will, be, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is, of course, the same sentiment that our Lord Jesus expressed in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if he wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks of you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said you'll love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven who causes his Son to shine on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Do not even the tax collectors do that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? The spirit of the gospel as evidenced in the lives of Joseph and David and Paul and even our Lord Jesus, is to leave vengeance to God. But we have to watch out. There's dangers to having a target on our head that we might not see. And let's look at those two things that Jephthah ended up experiencing that we might not see. Uh, having a target on your head can make you vindictive. And that's what happens to Jephthah here. Uh, I'm back at Judges chapter 12, verse 4 now. Uh, I want you to notice something in these verses 4 and 5. There's a phrase that's used in, in verse 4 and verse 5, but it's used of two different groups of people. The phrase is fugitives of Ephraim. In verse 4, it's a term that is used by the Westsiders against the Eastsiders. And in verse 5, it's a term used by the east-siders against the west-siders. In verse 4, it says the men of Gilead struck the Ephraimites because they said, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim, the west side, were calling the people on the east side fugitives of Ephraim. But verse 5, the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites, and when any of these guys from the west side were making their way back west, said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? And when he lied, when he said no, then they did the little password pronunciation word. This derogatory label 
fugitives of Ephraim. Gets tossed back and forth here. One group first calls the other side this derogatory term, and then the other side calls the other side yet. It's name-calling, pure and simple. What the name means, fugitive of Ephraim, is that you are illegitimate. You're not true Ephraimites. First, it's the west side Ephraimites who called Jephthah and the gang from the east side fugitives of Ephraim. It's a way of saying, you guys are the outsiders. You're not part of us. You're the Zooks. We're Zooks. We're Yooks on this side, right? It's, it's exactly the same. But notice how it flips in verse 5. Now the ones called fugitives of Ephraim are the west side. And the entire point of this little exercise of the Bible having these words here this way is to say, they're all Ephraimites. They're all Ephraimites. But they aren't one tribe anymore. They've splintered. They are not together. There is an us and there is a them. And you guys on the other side are the them. This sense of the other is even expressed linguistically. Two groups from the same tribe separated by the Jordan River over the years have developed ways of pronouncing words that are differently. Much as we have geographical distinctives of our pronunciation of words and even the use of words here in our own country, right? Uh, you can tell when someone is from a certain state quite often by the way in which their language uh, reflects it. Or words get used differently, like in the, in the South, uh, the word Coke means all kinds of soda pop, right? And some people use the word pop, and there's a little tiny pocket of people from central Illinois, and this is, lo this is losing, I mean, it's getting lost, but there's still maybe one or two people that still use this word for a soft drink that use the word sody. Anybody ever heard that word? It's a central Illinoisism, right? Sodi. This is what's happening here between the west side and the east side of the same tribe. They're separated by the Jordan River and there. Now they're beginning to distinguish themselves by their language. And so this is how Jephthah's troops can discern who's a west sider and who's an east sider. They're asking, are you a west sider? Are you an Ephraimite? And if they say no, they say, well, then say Shibboleth. And if they can't say the shh, they just say the s, then they know they're lying and they kill them. They use this difference of language to kill 42,000 of their fellow Ephraimites. But it's totally okay in their minds because those guys are the hated West Siders who would have done far worse to them had they had the upper hand, and they would have. This is the state in which Israel was in in the days of the judges when there was no king, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. And so in verse 7, Jephthah then leads the entire nation for six years. How do you think that went? <laughs> the emphasis of the word Gileadite and Gilead in verse 7 is there to show the partisan and parochial nature of his leadership of Israel. 
Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Very parochial, very concerned about just him and his group, very partisan. Let's think about some applications here on having a target on your head can make you vindictive. I think it's true that all good leaders want to lead well, but leading well means leading all the people in their stewardship, not just their partisans. And it's very hard to do that. It's very hard to distinguish that. And quite often, when a person does decide to do that, lead with stewardship of all of the people under their stewardship, it means that the partisans that are on their own team will sometimes be disappointed. Why aren't you taking care of us? Because the people that are the them, you're actually treating them better than you're treating us is how it sometimes goes in terms of the criticism of the leader. Let's think about that in terms of being believers in Jesus. While we must not ignore or de-emphasize the opponents of Christianity, that they in fact do want to destroy us, at the same time as fellow human beings and as followers of Christ, our call is not primarily to partisanship, but as citizens of Christ's kingdom to honoring everyone. A number of years ago, I did a series of messages in the Minor Prophets that described all the things that were coming and that were going to happen as a result of the tide of where our culture is headed, and largely all of those things have happened and even more that have led us to this point. But that's not a call to arms, it is instead a call to live a completely different ethic, the ethic that Peter gives us in 1 Peter 2, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, who at the time actually was not a very nice emperor to Christians. One example that I've seen uh, historically of this kind of good leadership was one of the most criticized of our national, in our nation's history, Abraham Lincoln. With the fall of Petersburg and Richmond and Lee's surrender to Granite Appomattox, Washington, D.C. was consumed with celebration. On the evening of April 10th, 1865, a crowd of some 3,000 people gathered outside the White House hoping for some rousing words from the president. And in response to their words, speech, Lincoln demurred, saying that he would deliver an address the following evening after he'd had adequate time to prepare. As consolation, he issued a special request for the Marine band who had gathered. Lincoln said this, I have always thought Dixie one of the best tunes I have ever heard. Our adversaries over the way attempted to appropriate it, but I insisted yesterday that we fairly captured it. As the crowd laughed and cheered, Lincoln added, it is good to show the rebels that with us, they will be free to hear it again. In his second inaugural, he said these words with charity, 
or with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. I think what Lincoln was saying by both his inaugural and his speech on the night of the surrender was, let's not have any more yooks versus zooks. Let's not have any more east-siders, west-siders. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Having a target on your head can make you vindictive. Let's look at our last section then. Success brings the danger of kingdom building. There's dangers to having a target on your head. It can make you vindictive, and your own success can lead to kingdom building. Let me read verses 8 through 15. There's a lot of words there that are hard to pronounce. I'm just going to pretend that I know how to pronounce them. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave in marriage outside his clan. And 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel. He ju judged Israel 10 years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ailon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Perathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Perathonite, died and was buried at Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. Now, you may have at some time or other read through the Scripture in a year. When you get to a passage like this, how many of you read slowly? Chances are you kind of just glossed over it, right? Ah, don't get that. Just move on to Samson, man. There's going to be some good stuff at least next Sunday, right? Let me try to unpack it for you a little bit. With all of these children and grandchildren that are being discussed, what's happening is that the many children imply that these men have, 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 have married multiple wives. And what they're doing is marrying as a way of charting marriage alliances in order to build their own kingdoms. This is the building of personal kingdoms that is going to plague Israel for centuries to come. Uh, go back to chapter 10 and you'll see it in a similar way in verses 1 through 5. Uh, particularly look at verse 3, after him arose Jair the Gileadite who judged Israel 22 years. He had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They had 30 cities called Havot Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried at Camon. Uh, multiple sons and daughters mean multiple marriages that are the building of marriage alliances, which is all about building your own kingdom. And you'll notice in chapter 12 that uh, this Ibsen in verse 9 
had 30 sons and 30 daughters that he gave, he gave the daughters in marriage to people outside of his clan. Why? To expand his own kingdom. Similarly, he had his sons married women that are outside of his clan. Why? To expand his own kingdom. And you might say, when you read chapter 10 and chapter 12, what in the world is with the donkeys? Why do we emphasize that they rode donkeys? It helps you to know that the riding of a donkey was an expression of kingship. You didn't ride war horses. If you're, a don if you're riding the donkey, you're showing that you have conquered. You're the winner. You are the king. So these guys having their children ride on donkeys was an assertion of their own kingdom building that they in fact are, at least in their own eyes, kings. And by the way, this explains why it was that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. He is asserting His kingship, not just over Israel, but over all the universe. One common political tactic is to establish facts which can't be easily undone, right? And so by having all these children and marriages and marriage alliances, the attempt is being made to create a status quo that can't be unraveled. That's what's behind these large families here in Judges 10 and Judges 12. We see it today in various political events that happen. You'll see it in political maneuverings where there is an attempt to build up some bureaucracy or other that establishes a fact that can't be undone. What are some ways that we as believers need to protect ourselves from these dangers of kingdom building? Well, believers need to be careful about fighting with the weapons of this world. It doesn't mean that we never use them, but it does mean that we must be very, very careful in their employment, don't we? It's not something that we should do just because the other side does it. We should not say, we're yooks and the zooks have done this and therefore we'll do to them as they've done to us. Rather, we ought to have the spirit of David as expressed in Psalm 138, a psalm that I have meditated on this week as I've thought about Judges chapter 12. Listen to some of the words that David says in Psalm 138. On the day I called you, you answered me, my strength of soul you increased. Not by some little trick that I've learned that I increased my strength. It was you who did it. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. David begins with the end in mind. He envisions a day when all the kings of the earth are going to ascribe glory to one king, to the Lord Himself. <coughs> For though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. People that aren't building their kingdoms, 
but are seeking God's kingdom, the Lord regards them. But the person who's haughty, who thinks he's got something going by building his own kingdom, the Lord knows that from way far off. He knows your ways even better than you know them, and he's many steps ahead of you. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Do you believe that, friend? That the Lord will fulfill his purpose for you? It is in that kind of spirit, in that kind of attitude, we can approach this very complicated, very difficult, very corrupting age. Don't run first to the websites that you like, that tell you what you already think. Run to the Lord. Seek Him, His kingdom, His righteousness. It is time for believers to acknowledge that this world is not a friend to grace, that we are and always have been a minority, that there is, in fact, going to be increased pressure and even persecution for belonging to another kingdom, but we must not have a mar martyr complex. We need to make the issues around which we are resolute biblical ones. And even though many Christians see it that way, things like wearing masks or getting vaccines are not resolute biblical issues. And sadly, churches are dividing all over the country over these issues. There will be a persecution of believers to come. Make no mistake of that. But the persecution will emerge much more clearly than what we're seeing right now. And the battle is going to be about who is Lord, the Lord Jesus or Caesar. And just because Caesar asserts his kingship over many issues does not mean that every issue over which he asserts his kingship is about destroying Christians. It's simply not true. Whether you say shibboleth or sibboleth was once a life or death matter in the history of Israel. Can you imagine that? That's how internally divided the nation was, that they killed people over mispronouncing or at least pronouncing a word differently. We need to learn the lesson. Some things are worth fighting for, but some things are not. And don't we need wisdom from God, from prayer, from the Word of God more than ever? May the Lord help us. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge today that we live in a corrupting age, that we're being brought even unconsciously to influences that we don't even know are influencing us. Help us to have discernment to see it ahead. Help us not to, when people hate us without a cause, to respond with the same kind of vindictiveness in return like Jephthah and these East Siders did 
toward the West Siders. <laughs> I would pray, Lord, that you would help us also look out for the danger of kingdom building, that we aren't made for this world, that instead we're made for a world to come. Now, God, I pray that as we consider these things, there are people even here in this room or in the sound of my voice via live stream who have never put their faith and hope in Christ and therefore are left with just considering the things of this world. Lord, would you give them freedom from that by opening their eyes to a king who died for them. Jesus died on a cross to forgive us of our sins. He was truly God and truly man hanging there on a cross to pay for our sins. And whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life in His kingdom with Jesus Christ as His or her King. So, Lord, I pray that people right now would say, Lord, I'm tired of being led around by the nose by these corrupting influences and being so worried and upset about so many things going on in my world and my heart is filled with anxiety and trouble. I pray, Lord, that you would Forgive me of my sin by what Jesus did at the cross. I ask that you would give me a peace that goes beyond my understanding. I'd ask that you would help me to seek a kingdom that is coming, not my own kingdom. I pray that you would kindly open my eyes to see the glory that is to come. And Lord, for all of us, May we seek not the weapons of this world and the building of our own kingdoms, but to love you, to honor everyone, to love the brotherhood, to fear you, remember who you are and act on it, and to honor the emperor. In Jesus' name, amen.